Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you and share the Word of God with you. Before I start, I, it would be, uh, or I would be remiss to not comment on what happened this past Friday. Um, if you have been attending our church for more than a week, I suppose, then there should be no question on uh, where I stand and where the church stands. We stand with the Orthodox Church in regard to, let's say, any kind of sexual issue, abortion issues, and things of that nature. And um, I praise God for what has been happening. Um, praise God for uh, His mercy, His grace that we have been receiving in this nation, even though we do not deserve it. Uh, some people have come to me, and have multiple people actually, and um, have told me some things about their stories, about what kind of responses they have received when they would post something similar, uh, maybe of praise or just some kind of response to uh, this really landmark and historic ruling by the Supreme Court in the Dobbs and Jackson case where they overturned Roe v. Wade and also Casey v. Planned Parenthood. And um, as they were sharing with me, you know, uh, they would also share with me their sadness and how people would want to try to convince people, you know, this is a good way. You know, following the ways of God is good. In fact, this is a loving way. This is a blessed way. It's a helpful way. It is a way that will help us as, a hum as humanity to flourish and how people would respond with mainly vitriol, a um, lot of anger and emotion. Uh, mostly people would turn to ad hominem attacks, you know. Ad hominem means just when you say something, people will just say, you are a nasty person, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you know, you're a sexist, whatever it is. When you turn to ad hominems, then you know that uh, you are not no longer uh, really addressing the issue uh, or debating. Uh, it's mostly emotion that rises. And this is what I wanted to share with our church too. As we continue to share truth and truth and love, perhaps you will be mocked. Perhaps you will be attacked. Perhaps you will uh, face, you know, vitriol. But we continue to preach the truth because there is no other reality, my friends. Uh, there is no other way. Um, what else can we do? This is what Peter said to, to, to Jesus. Jesus would, when people would leave Jesus, because what Jesus was saying was a little too difficult for a lot of people to get. It's like, wait, is this really what you're saying? And his disciples, quote-unquote disciples, would start leaving Jesus. And Jesus turned to Peter and his 12, uh, and he would say, are you also going to leave me? And Peter would respond, where else would we go? If you know the truth and you know what reality is, where else would you go? And so this is where we are. Um, I am reminded, I was really reminded this past weekend, you know, looking at my social media feeds and uh, being rejoiceful as well as being saddened by a lot of responses that people are saying. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, I grew up in that political time where people would say abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. And even then, to me, as a very young man, that didn't make any sense. The question to me always had been, is it a life? Is it a life? That's where we always start from. 
And if you haven't listened to the sermon uh, where I address this issue on abortion on Psalm 139, I encourage you to listen to it, but we always start from there. Is it a life? And if that baby is a life, who gave that baby life? Who gave that baby dignity? Who gave the baby that you're holding worth and beauty and this incredible potential that when we see a newborn, all, all, all we're filled with is this awe and this just amazement. So is it a life? And so when we start with that, and if you want to acknowledge that, perhaps there could be this debate, or perhaps there are the like, issues that you could discuss, but resorting to ad hominems and things like that, and emotions just boiling over is, um, is indicative of wrath. And this is what God and the scriptures continue uh, to share with us. This is God's wrath come upon the people that refuse to listen. I'll just share one verse before um, we get into the passage today. And this is going to be correlated as well with the sermon, but there is a passage where God reveals himself. And he reveals himself in, one of the, in, in the most stupendous, incredible ways. And this is Isaiah 6, which people all should be familiar with, if you grew up in the church especially, you've heard of this where the angels would see God condescending down to earth. This is the God, the living God, condescending down to earth. Isaiah is witnessing this, and the angels can't help but to cry out, holy, holy, holy. That's all they can say, because God is so utterly holy, and he is condescending on this wretched place. And so, Isaiah, seeing this, is given a task, and God is telling him to say something. What is it that Isaiah, uh, what is it that Isaiah has been given by God to say? And this is what it says. But before I even read that, Jesus shows up in the Gospels, all four Gospels. He quotes this Isaiah passage as well in all four Gospels, because Jesus is the manifestation of God come down to this earth. Now, I'll weave this all in together of what I've been trying to get at. But not only that, this passage is quoted again in the very last chapter of Acts, when Paul is finally going up before the king. This is what he says to the king. This is what he says in front of these witnesses as he is being held on trial for his life. And he quotes Isaiah 6 as well. So it's quoted in three sections of the Bible, from Isaiah to Jesus to the Apostle Paul. And this is what it says. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Let's begin before we go into this passage with a prayer. 
Almighty Gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your Holy Word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your Holy Word with all diligence and faith that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to go through two chapters of Samuel this morning, and uh, we'll go through chapters 18 and 19, but we'll all, I'll just be reading the first portion of this passage. So please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 16. If you have a pew Bible, you can find that on page 226. When you have found it, please rise in reverence for the word of the Lord. Hear now the word of the Lord. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. My friends, this is the inerrant, infallible word of the Lord. The next two chapters comes to us after we witness the epic battle between David and Goliath. Goliath's demise brings about it more than just a one-time victory. The ripple effects from it will now carry on for us to witness in these next two chapters. Everyone took notice of David. I mean, how could they not? 
Words were exchanged. The Philistine had technological superiority, physical strength, and it was that versus the power of God. Goliath was the epitome of strength and power to be coveted and feared. He had everything you could possibly think of or want. He had talent, he had skill, he had advanced weaponry, he had a defense that was virtually impenetrable. And who was on the other side? It was David who came at Goliath with a staff, a sling, and five stones that he picked up from a nearby brook just before. And so what happened? The Philistine champion was felled, literally, by a stick and some stones. Sticks and stones. Who knew? But David went to Goliath not merely with just sticks and some stones. He went to Goliath in the name of the living God, Yahweh. Goliath was completely and utterly defeated. But the story of David doesn't end there. In fact, it's just begun. And so I have just three topics or points for us today, general points that we'll go over. The first one is one or the other. Second one is unshakable favor. And the third one is resourceful protection. One or the other, unshakable favor, resourceful protection. As I've mentioned before, David, David's victory over Goliath will send ripples and shockwaves across the world across the world, not just his nation. Everyone took notice of David. Even the women sang songs of David's incredible victory in verse 7. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They weren't trying to be political here. This wasn't a slight against Saul. They were genuinely celebratory. As great as Saul is, David is that much more amazing, is the gist here. But two responses are recorded here for our edification. And the first one is of Jonathan, the son of the king. In verse 1, we see that Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan loved David as his very self. And this kind of deep and intimate friendship are what novels are written about. Frodo and Samwise Gamgee, Horatio and Hamlet, Tom and Huck Finn, Laverne and Shirley. I, I was sure I would lose like 99% with that last one. But if you know Laverne and Shirley, then you know Shemiel, Shemiel and Shlomazel. But um, these are characters that are depictions of friendships that point to that one true friend, that one true friend that if we are fortunate, we get to have, and that one true friend adds this deep beauty and a solid foothold during pivotal points in your life. And yes, uh, this one, this next portion is 
um, just an extra, this is just my thoughts. I am in that camp that believes you can only have one best friend. Uh, multiple best friends, I would just call friends. Uh, maybe close friends. And if you have many friends, and you're like, what do I call these many friends? Then I would just call them acquaintances, right? There's only one best man. That's why when I go to your weddings, and maybe I um, am officiating or just attending, if I go to your weddings and I meet your best man, I will lay down the pressure. Um, and some of you have already experienced that, not only as a best man, but as maybe the groom, and then your best man told you. Because the best man's speech better be good. It better be good. I expect nothing less than the best thing I have ever heard about the person they are speaking about. You see, if you really are best friends, this person is your best man, then you will know what to say about the other person because you see him as yourself. In verse 3, Jonathan would make a covenant with David. That meant that they walked. So this is how close Jonathan and David were. When you make a covenant with someone, what you would do is you walk in between one or more severed animals. That means you take an animal, you split it in half, and it's with all the gore and guts and blood, it's all there, and you walk in between it. Meaning, if I were to ever break this oath that I'm going to make with you, my friend who I'm walking down in between these severed animals, may it be done to me just as it has been done to these animals. That's how, that's how solid a covenant was. That's what you don't break. This is an oath that you do not break. And this is what Jonathan did with David. But not only that, Jonathan went beyond that. He was beyond maybe even what we think is a best man. In verse 4, he would strip himself of the robe that was on him and give it to David, his armor, his sword, his belt. What does that mean? In the earlier chapter, I had mentioned that when Saul tried to lend David his armor before he would fight Goliath, what that meant in the Near East was you are in effect lending him your strength. So if I lend you my armor or sword or whatever it is, I am lending you my strength, a part of who I am, a part of what I represent. And that's why Saul was giving it to David for his own benefit, for his own political motivations. However, what does Jonathan do? Does Jonathan lend him his things? No, he gives him all these things. Jonathan wasn't lending David. He was giving David everything. When you give your clothes and belongings to one another in the Near East, it means you're giving your position, your title, your status to that person. Jonathan is effectively transferring his crown because he was the next in line after his father Saul. He was the next in line, and he was transferring it over to David. He was giving David that position, that title, that status. Why would anyone do that, though? Why in the world would anyone do that? Why would the king become a servant? We would have a very hard time believing that anyone could possibly do that. You know, when I was a kid, I don't know if you 
would, can relate to this. When I was a kid, I really wanted a nice car. And sometimes you would daydream or imagine someone rich just pulling over and handing you their keys to their you know, Maserati or whatever nice car they had. And you would just have a, a little quick daydream about that. But that's not reality. No one's going to do that because that's just stupid. Who does that? I mean, you, now that you guys have money, you don't do that. You don't go around and just like, you know, let, let me throw this person the, the, you know, the keys to my car or whatever it is. But this is way more than that. This is the king saying, I will become your servant. Who would do that? You know, we have a tough time, not just giving cars. That, 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 that's maybe, you know, an extreme example. But we even have a tough time giving away our time to people. Even to grab a cup of coffee, we need to pencil it in because time is so, it's, it's such a, it's a hard thing to give away our time. Let alone the most coveted title in the entire nation, Jonathan would have. Why would Jonathan do this? You know, you don't go and give in to any rival. You eliminate the competition. Imagine the title-holding boxing champion who holds the belt just giving that away. You don't respect someone that does that. That's not honorable. You respect the person that fights to keep his belt to the very end. You fight to keep the crown. That's what earns you your accolades and respect. There are no accolades for the person who just gives up their belt. But Jonathan doesn't abide by the expectations of his culture. Why would he do this? And one commentator put it this way. I'm going to quote from him. This deed on his part was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over against the Christ who is truly Israel's king. After seeing David in action, Jonathan's response was a response of faith. And that's what's noted here. Saul, on the other hand, is not having it. He hears the praise from the women in the nation, and it led him not to love David as Jonathan did, but to anger and envy, and as we will see, murderous envy at that. So why are these two extremes highlighted here? Can't we just somehow belong in the middle of the spectrum between faithful love and murderous envy? But this is what influential people tend to do. They tend, if you're influential, you tend to be provocative. And people either love you or hate you for it. But David is no social media influencer. He's not a provocator for provocator's sake, meaning they just see fame as the end goal. Those people who see fame as the end goal, these kinds of influencers are mere empty shells of human beings standing on sinking sand. You're not standing on anything. You're just wanting to have fame and you'll do anything to be this 
quote-unquote influencer, but you're just an empty shell. David's obedience to God, that's what made him so provocative. And there you have it. Following the true and living God, obeying his word will make you provocative. Whether you want to be or not, there will be lines drawn, divisions set, and we should also know this and understand this and be cautioned of this. We should know this full well. You know, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, someone in our church posted, I didn't tell him I was going to talk about him, but someone in our church posted a celebratory post on social media. He was then mocked, ridiculed, and then blocked. Because this isn't about discourse. Someone just LOL'd him and called him a loser, and he was blocked. Because this isn't about discourse. It's about deception. It's about raw emotion. It's about rebellion and hatred toward God and his statutes. And so Peter warns us in his epistle, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when stuff like this happens, is what Peter is telling the people of the church. Jesus also spoke about this in Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Lest you think Jesus was this soft, squishy, just, oh yeah, anything's cool, I'm just a chill, hip dude. This is what Jesus would say. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This is, I don't know if, if you can relate to this, but in 2022, I think we could really relate to this. If you follow Jesus and you follow the things that he's teaching you and you actually espouse it, not just live it out, but you just say it, there will be father against son. There will be daughter against mother. There will be daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And Jesus continues, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You keep on trying to appease the world. You go, you know what? Let's not fight. Let's all try to get along. Even though you may disagree with Jesus, it's okay. Let's just live peaceably. Jesus is saying, whoever tries to find his life will lose it. The scriptures make it clear, when you obey God, don't be surprised if you are considered a provocateur, because it's Jesus who set the pace. It's Jesus who allows us to have this possession of faith so that we can follow and love him. And those who do not are the ones that will hold on to a murderous envy. You know, I... I do kind of share, you know, if you have things and issues that you are confused about, you can always come talk to me, you know. People are now saying things like, in a snide way against the church, like, well, if we overturn Roe versus Wade, I hope you will stand up for those 
that want to have their babies and will give them care and will give them everything that they need. And, and my response is, yeah, that's exactly what the church has been doing for 2,000 years. You know, where are the pregnancy centers? The pregnancy centers are in majority all Christian. Orphanages were found by Christians. Romans would try to not just abort their babies. If the baby was born, they would just leave them by the road in the wayside. There would be roads that were known to just have people leaving their babies. This is not a new concept of people abandoning their babies. During the night, Christians would come and pick up these babies. That's how orphanages started. Why do you think hospitals are named after saints? Who's the one taking care of the sick of those that are in need? It was the church. The church has always been doing this. It's because Jesus sets the pace for the church. We don't follow the ways of the world. We don't cave in to what their, their demands are. We follow Christ because Christ is the king. So either you follow Christ or you do not. That's the one or the other. You follow God's servant, or you do not. You obey and love and have faithful obedience to God's servant, or you have murderous envy. There is no spectrum that we can land on in between. It doesn't work that way. And this is what we are being shown here from verses 1 through 9. Next point is unshakable favor from verses 10 to 30, the end of chapter 18. There are three references to David's success in chapter 18. That's really hard to miss. In the beginning verses, we saw that after Jonathan would give up everything, his clothes, his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, all these things to David from verses 1 to 4. Verse 5, it says, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. If we take that one major point and we look at the outline from this portion of the chapter, we start seeing broad sections that are separated by David's success. So from verses 1 through 4, we see Saul's son, the clothes he gave to David, and in then verse 5, David's success. From verses 6 through 11, we see Saul's anger, the spear he hurls against David to try and pin him against the wall. And then from verses 12 to 16, we see David's success. From verses 17 to 27, we see Saul's daughter now, how there is a plot to ensnare David with a ridiculous and impossible task. And then in verses 18, 28 to 30, we see David's success. You see, no matter what David faced, whether good or bad or conspiracy-level bad, David was successful. Why is that? Why is that? There are three assertions to why this is the case, and they are found in verses 12, 14, and 28. Let me just read one of those verses. In verse 14, it says, And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Whether he was loved or hated, he was successful in his undertakings precisely because the Lord God Almighty was with him. But here's the striking part of this portion of the passage. It doesn't seem like David was aware of Saul's malicious intent. You might be thinking, how could this be when Saul would hurl a spear at David, not once, but twice? Twice. 
Maybe he did, and he just didn't hold it against Saul. I think that's a little hard to believe because Saul didn't just want bad things to happen to David. It's not like he wished him bad things. He wanted to kill David. He wanted to take his life, and that is a little hard to ignore. David could possibly believe that Saul was just having a bad day because in the earlier chapter, in chapter 16, we saw a harmful spirit would torment Saul and David would have to play the liar to soothe his soul. And so David then had no reason to suspect Saul of malicious, malicious intent when he would then, after that, he would first renege on his promise to give David his first daughter in marriage. Remember, that was a promise. He said, whoever would fell Goliath, you would have my daughter, daughter's hand in marriage. Uh, Saul promised. He reneged on that promise, and David did not hold it against Saul. Because Saul would then try to, and this is what Saul was thinking, why would I, why would I get my hands dirty when I could just have the Philistines kill him? So, Thinking he'd gotten rid of David, he would, you know, he would send David on these escapades, on these other battles, and so he gave his daughter to someone else while he would be fighting. But David returned, and he returned victorious. And that must have confounded Saul. And when Saul then saw his other daughter, Michael, she loved David. And this, it says in the Bible, made him happy. Why did it make him happy? Because now he could use her, his daughter, in a continued plot to get rid of David, to have him get killed. And so what is this conspiracy? He is told the bride price for Saul's daughter is 100 Philistine foreskins. That's gross and over the top maybe, but surely now David would be killed in battle, right? Wouldn't he be killed in battle? This, you have to go all this way to get 100 foreskins from the Philistines. But David returns again. And he brings with him not just 100, but 200 foreskins of the Philistines. Imagine counting them. But they did. In verse 27, it says that the full number was given to the king. Someone had to count them. And so Saul gave his daughter to David for marriage. What's even more ironic about this section here is that for thousands and thousands of years, marrying a king's daughter is and was a political act. It's the way you forged alliances with kingdoms. But not only that, it's the apparent weaker ruler that would give his daughter to the stronger king. The weaker ruler to forge an alliance would give his daughter to the stronger king for thousands and thousands of years, even during this time. That's why it was a big deal that Solomon married the Pharaoh's daughter in 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon married the Pharaoh's daughter. That's showing something about the relationship between Israel and Egypt, who is the greater kingdom. That's why David says twice that he is unworthy to marry the king's daughter. Who am I? I'm a peasant. I'm poor. I am not worthy to marry the king's daughter. And yet, he ends up marrying the king's daughter. God was using this as an apparent setup 
as David eventually being crowned king. Another interesting note, there's so many fascinating aspects about this story, is that while Saul hated David, both his children loved him. In fact, both would covenant with David to a certain degree. And a covenant is the strongest form of bond that you could have with someone. Jonathan, covenant of blood, and Michael with the covenant of marriage. And through all this, David seems unaware of Saul's true intent to have David killed. And this is where God's favor really shines. It's not just in the good times, but in the bad. It's not just when you know you're being blessed and protected. It's when you don't realize it as well. Nothing can stop God from bestowing his favor upon those whom he loves, even if kings would plot against them. David would recognize this eventually. I believe he recognized this because he wrote this in Psalm 139, verse 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Whether you realize it or not, whether someone means you well or wishes you harm, whether it is light as that you perceive or darkness that you perceive that covers you, God's favor to his people is unshakable. In Romans 8, Paul, recognizing this as well, would write, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. All these things meaning whether it's death or life, whether it's sickness or in health, whatever it is, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Who is the greatest conqueror that you can think of? Who is the greatest conqueror that you can think of in his history? Alexander the Great, um, Genghis Khan. Who is it? Paul is saying we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Joseph recognizes this because he was the one that was sold into slavery into Egypt and when his brothers feared for their lives because they thought Joseph has power over us, now that he has power over us, he is liable to do the exact same thing we did to him when we had power over him. But Joseph would say this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the last and final point, resourceful protection. And this is from chapter 19 in its entirety. Saul calls a meeting. All these things are failing. His son, his daughter, they all love him. He tries to hurl a spear at him, misses. David's like dodging. He's very agile. I just can't, I mean, could you picture it? Like David's playing like the guitar, like where Peter's standing in front of me and then just get like, 
my emotions get the best of me, so I decided to pick up a spear and hurl it at Peter, and Peter's like, I got you, you know, and he just leaves. I was like, can you imagine all these things that are happening? But this, it's going to get worse. It's going to get more extreme. And so, so Saul calls a meeting of his top eights, including Jonathan, his son, who was successful as well, skilled in every way, who led Israel to victory, as we saw in the earlier chapters. And he's going to inform them of his not now not-so-secret plan to kill David, I'm gathering you here because I want to kill David. And what this is kicking off is a series of four plans, four distinct plans by Saul to get rid of David. But another way of looking at it is that David is going to experience four back-to-back experiences of deliverance. As soon as Saul would disclose and uncover his plan to Jonathan, Jonathan's, John, Saul's son Jonathan would intervene on David's behalf. He would confer with Saul. He would press him, saying, this is irrational. This is amoral. Why would you sin against innocent blood, put David to death for nothing? And Saul would then go, you know what? I will give you an oath I will guarantee David's safety. I want you to see the progression of these four stories that are happening. It's important that we know. There's going to be a crescendo, and we have to work out what kind of crescendo we are seeing. So Jonathan then informs David, brings him back to the court. This difficulty had been worked out. And then saying, he, said, he would say something like, it's amazing, if you just talk, talk it out, let's just talk it out. If you just talk it out, you would be amazed to see what you can just kind of iron out, or so it seemed. And there was war after that. Here's a second dilemma. Saul is absolutely engrossed with madness, hatred. It says an evil spirit from God plagued Saul. Yeah, we can't forget that Saul is under judgment right now as well. When you're under judgment, there's no rationale. It's just raw emotion. And so David, who was customarily used to like playing music for Saul, is playing. And Saul, again, would take a spear in his hand. It always seems like Saul has a spear in his hand. And you have to wonder, it's like, you know what? If Saul has a spear in his hand, maybe don't go in the same room. But David... Is, I don't know if he's confident, he's just very trusting or maybe naive. He attempted again to nail David to the wall, but it succeeded only getting the spear into the wall. And David again evaded the throw, and then he would go home. It's like, you know what, might as well go home. I think this is my, my uh, exit. This is my call to leave. My welcome is no longer there. This is, this is, a, this is kind of ironic here, but... In the verses, it would say David would strike down, or he struck down the Philistines, and then it's the same verb. Saul tries to strike down David. So at one, one, one point, you see that God's servant is striking down his enemies, and another point, we see God's enemy try to strike down God's servant. But it's ironic because David is treated like the Philistine, like a Philistine, even though he is the one giving victory over the Philistines consistently to Saul. But David is delivered. 
he evades the spear. Here's another crescendo. Here's the third part. As David's going home, it's not a safe place either. Saul would post his aides or his henchmen, his guards, to wash the door of David in the morning. And you can, you can maybe imagine what is going on. His daughter, Michael, would hear of it. And then she obviously took notice, and she would be the one saying, you have to leave. You have to exit the window, or you have to leave uh, because you're going to be killed. And what's funny is that Michael would take like an image or an idol and dress it up with goat's hair and put it on the bed. This is not turning into a comedy. Like, who does that? You know, what are we watching? Some cartoon? But this is exactly what she does. And she puts this dummy in the bed, covers it, so that it's like, um, it looks to be, it looks to appear as if David is sleeping. And so when they come in, Saul's very upset. It's like, why did you do this? And Michael goes, well, I mean, you, you also see him as this crazy, deranged man. I fear for my life, just as you saw him. And then David flees. But David is saved again. Here's the fourth one. David flees to Samuel this fourth time. Goes to Ramah. He wants to go to the prophet. What can Samuel do, though? He's not a, a leader of the army. And Saul has his informants everywhere. You know, the trees have ears. The walls have eyes. And so as soon as he hears of it, he sends his henchmen, his officers, to apprehend David. You know what? This time, I'm going to go with them. If you have to do something, something right, you just got to do it yourself. And so Saul goes. And this is really, really interesting because it says here that Saul sent messengers in verse 20. Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Like he was saying, like, yo, you gotta go, I want you to go kill David. This is what happens. They started prophesying, so they're like stuck prophesying. So now you're seeing this picture. There, there's these groups, a group of men, they, they, they're armed to the teeth, and they're gonna kill David. And they're stopped, and they start prophesying. They're just stopped. They're stuck there. And so Saul's like, you know what? That's it. i got to go by myself. And then he himself, in verse 22, he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naioth in Ramah. And then he went, to, he went there to Naioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he prophesied until he came, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth in Ramah. And he, too, stripped off his clothes. So this is apparently what's happening. These guys are going. All of a sudden, this prophetic spirit, whatever it is, comes upon them, and they strip naked. And so Saul's like, this is ridiculous. i got to do this myself. Saul goes, and he, too, strips himself naked and starts prophesying before Samuel, laying naked, it says, all day and all night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. That, that's funny. That's ironic because remember when Saul first, it was said this, is Saul first among the prophets. That was like 
a little signifier. It was a sign that Saul was supposed to be king. Here, here's a little sign. Saul is prophesying with all the prophets. That's how Saul first became king. But now you see the same thing used as judgment against Saul. Is Saul also among the prophets? Here he is, the king of Israel, stripped naked, prophesying, unable to do anything. What is going on here? Why this crescendo? And I really believe we see here the diversity of deliverances that Christians, or people of God, experience. It's not just one common way that we see again and again. As resourceful as the enemy is, or we think they are, people that are against us, God is even more resourceful in his deliverance. And it's kind of hilarious. Uh, I'm not trying to be mean or facetious. I think it is pretty funny. Imagine someone trying to go kill you, and then all of a sudden he stopped because he's stripped naked, and he's just babbling, and he's just there, and he can't move. But in his mind, he's like, I'm trying to kill you, but I can't because I'm babbling and I'm naked. And so this is the crescendo that we see up to this point. And I can't help but to be reminded, this is all pointing, not just to what we're seeing today, where people are just being possessed, but this is Psalm 2, come to life. Psalm 2, it says, why do the nations rage? Why does the king rage against God's servant, right? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what the kings of the world say. And this is the response. He who sits in heaven, he who sits in the heavens, laughs. That's in Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has set his king. He has appointed his servant. He has made known who is King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no denying it. There is no defying it. If you want to refute it, you could try your best. It's been assured. It's been proven. It's been recorded. It's been witnessed. It's been given to us, and it's been revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't go against that. We submit to it. And those that submit and follow God, have this faithful love toward God, and we see God with his incredible diversity of promises being fulfilled in our lives. The diversity of deliverance points then to the wealth of riches God has for his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And I believe this is what we are witnessing here today as well. God is the one in control. It's God who's leading his people. It's God who is sovereign over the world. Even though you would plot against all of God's commands, it says in the Bible, you plot in vain. 
When you set yourself up against God, you set yourself up against His anointed, the one whom He has set as king. Even if you would think, I don't need God, how dare you try to inject God into the public sphere? Take your church, take your God out of this world. It's God who is injecting His rule, His law, His statutes into His world because He has set His king over Zion, His holy hill. When we are here, we're worshiping God. This is not just a box worship. We're not just here just in this space, and then when we go out, we transform back to something else. What we are recognizing is that when we gather together to worship the one and true living God, the Savior of our people, the Savior of our souls, what we are saying is we are declaring that He is King, not only over our lives, but over every life. Over all of creation, God rules supreme. That is what we are declaring. So from here, we go out into the nations and saying, don't plot in vain. Don't be one of those people where you would hear but never understand. That you would see but never perceive. Don't be one of those people whose heart would grow dull and your ears could barely hear and your eyes are closed But pray desperately that your eyes are open so you can see with your eyes and hear with your ears and understand with your heart and know that that's when God would turn and heal you. Repent and believe for the Lord Jesus Christ is king and he saves those who places their trust in him. He is mighty to save and he will not turn his back to his people and he will not turn his back on the church. He will continue to lead his church for he is the sovereign and God of all there is. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your providence. And even though we are shaky, we may falter and wander and maybe even stumble. We are thankful that it is not by our strength that we walk this journey. It is not our own intelligence that we have to reason through everything in life. You give us faculties, and they are amazing. You give us intelligence. You give us strength. But Lord God, you give us where we lack. What we could have never done is save ourselves. And you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, so that now we are full, we are complete, we are whole. We can have joy, and our lives can be filled with thanksgiving no matter what circumstance may come our way. For nothing can now separate us from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's take this time to pray. Perhaps you were dismayed. Perhaps you were afraid. But God is reminding you that He is your God. And as you follow Him, He is the one that will lead His people. So let's continue to pray that our lives will be alive, that we'll trust him, that we'll follow him, just as Jesus commanded to take up our cross and follow him daily. Let's pray.